0: I'd like to thank the church family for inviting me uh, to worship with you and to share the messages God has put in my heart. I also would like to thank the Lawton family for that beautiful, lovely, melodious, inspirational, amazing grace music. Thank you. It was, it was well done. I pray that uh, this message will be a blessing to all families, nuclear family, blended family, married or single, young or old. Of course, none of us consider ourselves old. I believe if we, by the grace of God, keep the following Six promises. Your bulletin says five. I'm sorry. It's six. If we, by the grace of God, keep these six promises, we will produce effective families. Here is uh, promise number one I promise to deal with anger. How often? on a daily basis. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11, a fool always loses his what? temper, but a wise man restrains withholds it holds it back. Now when we speak of controlling anger, we must never excuse or justify or rationalize our anger. The reason I'm angry is because you drove me crazy or you drove me up the wall. I had no defense, so I had to be angry at you. We should never, ever justify our anger. We must prepare ourselves to acknowledge it and deal with it honestly. And you know, we must... uh, Whenever we start becoming angry, we should immediately stop what we are doing and think about what is happening. Have you ever tried that? Just before you lose it, have you ever stopped and take the time to think before you demonstrated or exhibited your anger? We need to stop and think. If we do, we're able to evaluate the reason for our anger. In his book, uh, Christian Counseling, Gary Collins encourages us to ask these questions before we get angry. Here's number one. What is making me feel what? Angry. Why am I feeling anger and not some other emotion am i jumping to conclusion about the situation or person who is making me angry is my anger justified is it right for me to feel inferior or threatened in this anger arousing situation How might others, including the person who is angering me, view the situation? Is there any other way I could look at the situation without getting angry? Are there things that I could do to change the situation in order to reduce my what? Anger. Now, these questions will not only help us think and evaluate the reasons for our anger, but also will provide us more information before we start becoming angry. Now you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Sometimes we perceive or assume that certain things are happening when they really are not. For example, you may have heard the story about the man riding on the train with his five-year-old son the little boy was full of energy. He bounced on the seat. He ran up and down on the aisle. and He yelled a lot, screaming and yelling. A woman passenger became upset with that little boy's annoying actions. And so she said to herself, Why doesn't the man teach his son some manners? He just sits there and stares out the window, ignoring his son's behavior. Finally, the woman could stand the boy's action no longer. And with a firm voice, she looked at the father and said to the father, Sir, why don't you make your son behave? He's bothering everyone on the train. He's yelling and running up and down on the aisle, and Just with a startled look, the man returned from his deep thoughts to the reality of the angry woman facing him. He said, Ma'am, I'm sorry. I didn't realize my son was disturbing everyone on the train. You see, my wife died yesterday and her coffin is in the last compartment or car of this train and we are going back to where she was born, to bury her body. I just wasn't thinking about what my son was doing. I, I'm so sorry. You see, when we have more information about an event, many times it will alter the way we feel and respond. That's why it is important to ask these questions before we become get angry. Because when you start asking these questions, it will alter the way you're thinking about the situation, and that might reduce your anger. And you know, when we have more information about an event, many times it will alter the way we feel and respond. And so we we, we need to learn to ask ourselves, am I angry feelings justified or unjustified? The reason why we need to deal with anger on a daily basis is this. Unresolved anger, what does it do? It contaminates. <laughs> it contaminates your attitudes. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. Make sure that no root of bitterness shoots forth and causes trouble, and many become what? Contaminated by it. Notice, Bitterness is described as a root. I want you to think about this. You can't see a root. It's deep down under the ground, right? But you can be sure of this. A bitter root will produce bitter fruit. If we have bitterness on the inside, it's going to affect or contaminate every area of our lives. And many people attempt to bury their hurt and pain deep down in their hearts or in their subconscious minds. And then they harbor unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness and then they wonder why they can't get along with other people, why they can't be happy, why they can't get along with their spouse. They don't realize it. But it's because their own hearts are poisoned or contaminated. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, out of the heart flow what? Flow the issues of life. In other words, if we have bitterness on the inside, it's going to end up contaminating everything that comes out of us. It'll contaminate our personalities, our attitudes, as well as how we treat other people. Here's an illustration. And this is a true story. Years ago, there was uh, a terrible outbreak of disease in a tiny village in a remote parts of Africa. Both children and adults were getting sick and were overcome with nausea. Several weeks passed. The sickness became widespread and, and, and people started dying. Words of the disease reached the main city in the area, And health experts were dispatched to try to figure out what was causing the problem. They soon discovered that the water was contaminated. You see, the village got got its water supply from a mountain stream that was fed from a spring. So the health experts decided to truck upstream and hopefully find the source of the pollution. Anyway, they traveled for days and finally they came to the mouth of the stream. When they looked on the surface, they found nothing wrong. Puzzled, they decided to send some divers down to search as closely to the spring's opening as possible. When the divers dived in, what they discovered shocked the health experts. A large mother pig and her piglets were wedged right at the opening of the spring. Evidently, they had fallen in and and drowned, and somehow they gotten stuck there. Now, all that crystal clear, pure mountain spring water was being contaminated as it flowed past the decomposing remains of those dead pigs. And in no time after divers were able to extricate the dead pigs, the water began to flow clean and pure once again. You know, when when I read read this uh, illustration in, in a book a couple of years ago, I said, what's the lesson here? What is the lesson here? You see, we should not allow resentment and bitterness to take root and contaminate your life. You see, God created you and me in His image. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be whole. God wants you to enjoy life to the full, not to live with bitterness and anger and resentment and, and, and polluting yourself and, and contaminating everyone else with whom you have influence. God doesn't want you to do that, and God doesn't want us to live like that. But you know what? Here's the good news. It doesn't matter how polluted the stream may be right now. How muddy or murky the waters may look in your life today if you will begin to forgive the people who offended you and release all those hurts and pains and bitterness. If you do that by the grace of God, you will be able to see that crystal clear water flowing in your heart once again. And you will begin to experience the joy and peace and freedom God intended for each of us to have. All right? That takes us to our next promise. So the first promise is that we deal with our anger on a daily basis. Here's number two. Promise number two. I promise to practice daily what? Forgiveness. In other words, You must be quick to forgive. A few years ago, family life educators did an extensive research to see any correlation between forgiveness and marriage satisfaction. They surveyed uh, 100 couples with terrible baggage, illicit affairs, emotional abuse, financial betrayal, you name it. So they interviewed these, you know, 100 couples and asked all kinds of questions about forgiveness and and communication, you name it. And they made an intriguing discovery. They found forgiveness accounts for about a third of marriage satisfaction. If you and I learn to forgive our spouses on a daily basis, if possible, One-third of you, you have reached one-third of marriage satisfaction right there. Even though many Christians know they should forgive. And they have the knowledge that they should forgive. That knowledge doesn't give them the ability to pull it off. They ask, Pastor, I know God wants me to forgive, but I just can't find the strength to go through with it. Now, let's be honest, folks. No one finds forgiveness an easy task. <laughs> you see, uh, often we are reluctant to forgive because we find barriers that will hinder us from considering, uh, uh, from forgiving someone or uh, from actually doing the forgiveness action. You know, we, 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 we always come across barriers, and we don't have time today to cover all barriers to forgiveness. But uh, there's one barrier that I would like us to consider. And that is this. Why? Justice. Often, often we find it difficult to forgive because it drives us crazy to see the person who did us wrong going scot-free while we suffer the consequences of their wrongdoing. We want justice. But God tells us we don't need to worry about that. Justice and vengeance belong to who? God. And He will take care of what needs to be done. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. Sorry, 12, verse 19. Chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room. God says, please give me some room. <laughs> Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We know the scripture. Still, we seem to want the satisfaction of seeing God do it. Lord, if vengeance belongs to you, if you want me to leave room for your wrath, I want you to do it right now. (laughs) I want you to... Pour out your anger and your wrath on this person right now because I want to see justice done. We want to see the lightning bolt (laughs) and see God avenging our enemies when they get their well-deserved zapping. But you know what? God works in His own good time And in his own good way. That may mean your enemy will not receive the punishment you want to see. He or she may instead receive mercy. You know, that's what really bugged Jonah. He hated his enemies, the Ninevites. Because they responded to his preaching and repented and turned to the Lord in sackcloth and ashes. That drove him crazy. Did he rejoice when they repented? What did he do? He went up to himself, crawled under the weeds and waited for God's justice. He had so much hate in his heart that he couldn't stand to see his enemies receive God's forgiveness and grace. You see, often we don't see either God's grace or His punishment inflicted on our offenders. We simply see them going about their daily business with freedom as if they had not a care in the world, as if they were completely unaware and un- unrepented of the terrible pain they inflicted on us, and you watch them walk and go everywhere. And that makes our anger burn all the harder and makes forgiveness that much difficult. But if we truly trust God, we will rest in the assurance that He will do what is best for everyone involved in every situation. If punishment is needed, God will administer it. If grace is sufficient without punishment, he will take that route. We don't need to know. We simply need to put it in God's hands. And we need to trust that God will do what is right. And that's what he does. It's, that's the business he is in. And he knows how to run it. And so we've got to leave the fate of our offenders in his hands. Each of us is individually responsible to God and we have no need to know how God's dealing with another person. In other words, when you forgive those who have hurt you, when you do that with a willing heart, you begin to look a lot more like Jesus when you and I do that, folks. In Ephesians chapter 4, listen to what the Bible says. Verse 32 says, Be what? Kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. The truth expressed in this verse contains the secret to a successful family, a strong family, and a long-lasting marriage relationship. We must forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave us. Now here is the question. How did God in Christ forgive us? How did he forgive us? You see, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to save the world. How did the world treat him? They mocked him, spat on him, jammed a crown of thorns on him. They made fun of him. And what was Jesus' response? Father, what? Forgive them. During those 33 years of his life on earth, folks, he was rejected and ignored. He was pushed and shoved. He was mistreated and misquoted. He was maligned and tortured and scourged and nailed to a cross in spite of the way the world treated him jesus hung on the cross and died for their sins to save them so that so that he could grant them eternal life those who believe in him so that they could spend eternity with him jesus forgave his offenders freely and unconditionally folks that's what it means to forgive each other just as god forgave you and me in christ and you know what? It has been my own experience. And my wife and I have been married for 27 years. And we have been learning to forgive each other on a daily basis. And let me tell you, folks, many marriages could be healed overnight if couples could learn how to forgive each other. Amen? And when you forgive each other, you need to forgive freely and unconditionally. That that doesn't mean you're condoning sin. That doesn't mean that you're giving license to sin. That doesn't mean that you're excusing or justifying sin. No, 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 no. You need to deal with that. But your part is to forgive freely and unconditionally. Listen to what Alan White says in Steps to Christ. When the love of Christ is enshrined in the heart, Like sweet fragrance, it cannot be hidden. Its holy influence will be felt by all with whom we come in contact that includes your spouse and your children. So forgive for Christ's sake. A much-loved grandmother was celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary. One of her daughters asked, Mama, what's the key to the happiness and joy you and Daddy have known through the years? You guys dated each other for almost eight years before you got married. It's almost 60 years now. Could you tell us the secret of your joy? Well, She began, honey, when your daddy and I first got married, I made a list of 10 things that I would overlook about his personality, things that I just didn't like about. The the day we walked down the aisle, I made a promise that when any of those 10 things came up, I would overlook those, one of those ten things, for the sake of marital harmony and joy and happiness. Granny, one of her granddaughters, excitedly replied, Could you please tell us that list? Tell us what the ten things were. Well, honey, she answered. To be honest, I never did write them down. But every time your grandfather would do something to make me hopping mad, I would think, lucky for him, it's one of those ten things. (laughs) Here's the question for you. What ten things make you hopping mad about your spouse? What behavior or event tends to cause the most conflict in your home? Whatever those ten things may be, folks, you would be wise to use this grandmother's example. In fact, we all would be. Then we, too, would be on our way to a golden marriage or create a strong, a wonderful family. Moving on to promise number three. Promise number one. I promise to deal with anger on a daily basis. If if you don't know how to deal with anger, get help. Here's number two. I promise to pr- practice daily forgiveness. But By the way, that, there are steps to forgiveness. Okay? There are some things you have to quick. You, have, you, you should be quick to forgive. You shouldn't hold that. There are some things you have to go through some steps. You know, I'm not including, you know, abuse, whether it's an emotional abuse, sexual abuse. It takes a while for you to forgive that person. You know, so I, I'm not, um, you know, um, ruling that out. So please keep that in mind when we talk about forgiveness. It's very important. Here's number three. I promise to take personal responsibility for my actions and what? Reactions. You know, you have a choice about how you react when someone pushes your button. No one else controls how you think. No one else controls how you react. You alone do that. So don't tell your spouse, the devil made me do that. <laughs> or you made me do that. Or you pushed the button. No, no, you alone do that. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Suppose you're walking down the streets of downtown Nina. And some guy you whom you've never seen before Comes up and calls you a disgusting name. What do you do? You punch him? (laughs) How would you react to that? You know, you may say to yourself, you know, he must be something wrong up here, you know. Or you won't do that, you know, in action, but, you know, you say that to yourself. And you will just you keep on walking. Why? Because you don't want to fight. And what some lunatic says on the streets of the capital of Nina doesn't affect you. Let him chatter and babble all he wants. You don't care. What happens though if your wife or boyfriend or your co-worker calls you the very same name? It probably pushes your button. Now, why do you react differently? The name calling itself hasn't created a button. The button was there in both cases. But in the second instance, the name calling triggered your fear of rejection, failure, or disconnection, or whatever. In the the first case, it didn't, because you didn't care about that guy. You have no connection with him. You You have no influence. You have not invested anything in this guy. So you don't care. So it is not about the existence of your button, but about the way you choose to think or react when your button gets pushed. Do you see how this empowers you? You control how you think and react. You can't control whatever, you know, uh, whether anyone pushes your button. You can't control that. But you can control how you think and react when your button gets pushed. Therefore, you are in charge of your buttons. So if it is loose, sew it up. (laughs) Do something. (laughs) Get help. (laughs) Oh, here's another illustration. Do you ever think that traffic makes you angry? Hmm. You hear about road rage and all that stuff, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You really think the traffic makes, you look at the traffic and say, I'm really angry. Look at this traffic. It doesn't. What makes you angry is how you choose to respond to it. Traffic doesn't control how you feel you have the power to take the personal responsibility for your action to that broken down car in that express lane during the middle of rush hour traffic. (laughs) I remember reading about uh, a a mother and son traveling to school and uh, the son blurted out at least two or three times, look at that idiot, he's going so slow. Look at that idiot! You know he didn't put his signal on, and and and, and the mother was shocked, and, and she looked at him and said, "Son, what's wrong with you? Where did you learn that?" Well, mom, dad and I were trying, you know, going to school yesterday, and and you know, and you know, dad said, "Idiot for everybody." <laughs> I learned, six, I learned six idiots on the road from our home all the way to school. Six idiots showed up, you know? <laughs> traffic doesn't control how you feel. You have to take the personal responsibility for your action or reaction to that broken down car in that express lane during you know, the middle of a rush hour traffic. By the way, when it comes to taking responsibility for your buttons... I like how Gary Smalley, one of the well-known family life educators, puts it. He says, actually uh, he has books, many award-winning books he has written. uh, Your thoughts control your what? Feelings and reactions. I want you to think about that. If you want to control your reactions, you need to control your thoughts. You see, many people focus on their actions and reactions when they behave bad but many fail to focus on their thoughts. We learned that last night. So if if your beliefs are wrong, then you're going to have wrong thoughts and thus wrong behaviors or actions. Many fail to focus on thoughts and that's why God tells us, I want you to read this with me together, shall we? Let's read this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, when you think on those things, your thoughts will be in harmony with those things. So will be your actions and reactions. So traffic doesn't control us. If you want to control your reactions, you need to control your thoughts. And you see many people focus on their reactions and their behaviors. So let me illustrate that from my own experience. Several months ago, my stomach was upset and nervous about something. I was on the bed trying to sleep. I couldn't shake it. I felt discouraged about a situation and felt as if I was a total failure. So I asked myself, why am I upset? And feeling discouraged, I thought. and I, could, I couldn't sleep. I also felt s- stuck and couldn't figure out how to improve it. And so I prayed, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I I feel terrible. I feel discouraged. I I don't know what's going on with me. Please help me. Then the Lord reminded me of this verse. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to what? To who? To Christ. And then... Pastors know a lot of scripture, supposed to. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I was reminded God's power is made perfect in me, in my weakness. And I had to immerse my thoughts and my feelings into that. The more I focused on that verse, the truth of that promise changed my thinking and my thinking changed my feelings. And now, instead of feeling discouraged, I felt grateful for the weak areas of my life that remind me of my total, utter dependence on God. So I said, okay, it's fine. Your power is made manifest. You know, your power is, is demonstrated in my strength, Lord. Thank you. He's perfect, made perfect in my weakness. And after I, I, I had to do that for a, few, for a few minutes. I don't know how long I did that, folks. You, had to, you have to immerse your mind in God's word to change your feelings and your thoughts. And as soon as I changed my thinking, my heart reflected the corresponding emotion. And guess what? I was able to fall asleep and I slept like a baby after that. But it took me a while. Trust me, it wasn't easy. When you do God's will, when you follow his word, you will experience amazing freedom, folks. Freedom from everything. Freedom from any kind of addiction. You name it. Okay, we've got to move on. A couple more. Promise number 4 I promise to be who an authoritative what parent Sociologist uh, Reuben Hill conducted a study of thousands of teens and parents in Minnesota and found that different parenting styles produced different responses among children and he discovered mainly four kinds of parenting styles and I'll be very brief. The first one is permissive parent. Okay? Now, these parents are high in love, lots of love, lots of love, lots of candy, lots of cookies, <laughs> lots of love, but low in what? Discipline. Okay? So that study revealed through, the, 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 although the parents express lots of love, their lack of discipline will produce children with very low self-esteem, or feelings of inferiority, and also with a high level of insecurity among children. So you don't want to be a permissive parent. Now here is the second parenting style. It's called neglectful parent. Hey, where's your kid? I don't know. <laughs> you should be down somewhere in the basement, <laughs> you know. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about at home. I'm talking about in public places. Okay? And uh, now these parents are low in love and also low in what? Discipline. No love, not, you know, very little love. And this kind of parent doesn't express much love and also doesn't really care enough to discipline. And so these children grow up with unbelievably with emotional, deep emotional scars. Okay? And here is another one. The third parenting style is authoritarian, military style. You do what I say. No questions. No Don't Don't you open your mouth. My dad was an authoritarian when I was growing up. Well, you know, he didn't know any better. I'm not giving an excuse, you know, but he didn't know any better. Even when, when, I, when I wanted to cry, I couldn't cry. Yeah, shh. Don't you, don't you cry. Dad, but you spanked me. I have to cry. <laughs> you deserve that, so don't, oh, Okay. So these parents, authoritarian parents, are low in love, but high in what? Discipline. Have you heard kids call their dads, yes, sir, yes, sir? I think mostly in the South, I don't know. I've heard boys call their dads, yes, sir. Now, here's the last one, authoritative parenting style. Now, these parents set clear boundaries for children but also they are very loving. And so the children grow up with high healthy self-esteem and they are equipped with good coping skills. The sociological study found that the parent, authoritative parent who balances love and discipline without compromising either, produces well-adjusted kids who maintain a positive relationship with mom and dad. And these kids know how to respect authority. And these kids also know how to love others. I love the story of the high school student. He was a senior who went to his father in January, the year he was to graduate. Dad, he said, I think I deserve a new car for my graduation." His dad thought thought for a minute and replied, son, by the way, this this family is a wealthy family. So uh, dad said, I'll get you the new car, but you've got to do three things first. Number one, bring your grades up. Number two, read your Bible more. And number three, get a haircut. Anyway, just before graduation, the son went up to his father and said, Dad, how am I doing? Am I going to get that new car for my graduation? Son, I've been observing you. You brought your grade average up from a C to an A. That's good. I've also noticed you've been studying the scriptures every morning before school. That's wonderful but you still haven't gotten a haircut. How come? Dad, the young man replied. I was studying the Bible, and I noticed that Moses is always depicted in the illustrations as having long hair. And even Jesus had long hair. And the father said, really? Son, you must remember that Moses and Jesus walked everywhere they went. (laughs) And so will you if you don't get a haircut. (laughs) We dads and moms must never lose the joy of being parents and the sense of humor that comes from interacting with our children. That is a perfect example of an authoritative parent. Clear boundaries, lots of love. We need to be able to laugh and say, no, not this time, not now. No, you won't do that. I love you too much to let that happen to you. No, not today. You should be able to say that to your kid. Now, that is a good example, again, of an authoritative parenting style. Okay, got to finish. Here we go, number five. Oh, authoritative prayer. high in what? High in love, high in discipline. We know that. Okay, here's number five. I promise to pray for and pray with my children. Now, what sorts of issues can we pray about regarding our children? Well, we have some help available for that, Okay. Let me put this on the screen real quick and I will go through them. Actually, author Patrick Morley uh, comes up with these things that we can pray for our children. Pray for a saving faith if they don't know the Lord. Okay? Pray for a growing faith if they are immature. Pray for an independent faith as they get older. By the way, I can email these notes, PowerPoint notes, if you give me your email after uh, lunch, after dessert. Okay. All right. Pray for an independent faith as they get older. Pray that they will be strong and healthy in mind and body and spirit. Pray for a sense of purpose and destiny in their life. Pray for a desire within them that they will have integrity for a call to excellence. Pray that they would understand the ministry God has for them. Pray that they will set aside times to spend with God. Pray that they will acquire wisdom. And finally, pray for protection against drugs and alcohol and what? Premarital sex. Pray for that. Pray that our children will stay pure. They don't have to follow the world. They don't have to follow the majority. Oh, I have all kinds of illustrations to give you, but I don't have time for that. But I'll share this with you. I read the story of a man who had a lovely wife, two sons, comfortable house, and a good good paying job. All went well until one night one of the sons became ill Believing the illness to be nothing serious, the parents gave the child an aspirin and went to bed. The child died during the night of acute appendicitis. The grief and guilt of that experience drove the father to alcohol. In due time, his frustrated wife left him He was now a single parent with one son, his son Ernie, and an alcohol problem. With the passing of time, his alcoholism led to the loss of his job, eventually the loss of his house, his possessions, and self-respect. And eventually, he died in a lonely motel room alone. But the son, his son his son Ernie turned out to be a well-adjusted, hardworking, generous adult. Knowing the circumstances of his upbringing, somebody, one of his friends, asked the son, "Hey, I know that you and your father lived alone in that motel or in that apartment for many years. I know something of his problem with alcohol. But what did what did you what did your father do that caused you to turn out to be such a loving?" gracious, generous, and kind young man. Upon further reflection, the young man said, you know, as long as I can remember, from the time I was a child until I was 18 years of age, every night my father would come into into my bedroom. He would kneel with me and pray with me, and then he would kiss me on the cheek and say, I love you, son. Of your son. And apparently, this man prayed with his son Ernie each night, gave this young man the ability to develop a positive outlook on life in spite of his father's failures and his father's alcohol problem. My dear people, pray for your children, but most importantly pray with your children don't miss that here's the last point here's my last promise I promise that I will make God not my mate the center of my what life let me explain this so that you you have an understanding and then I have a story to conclude I don't have a bucket here. I want you to imagine this. Imagine that I have a blue plastic bucket for a moment. Now imagine the bucket has a supply of clean, crystal, clear water from God. And it never runs out. Okay, this bucket, blue bucket, is filled with crystal clear water. And it's from God. And it's, it never runs out. But unlike the bucket, your spouse has limitations. Unlike the bucket, your mate will eventually run out. Your mate is not going to have the energy to meet every one of your needs. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, My God shall supply what? all my needs according to the riches of glory that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So your mate is not going to have the energy to meet every one of your needs. Do you remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman who was coming with her her bucket to get water from the well? Listen to what he said in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Shall we read that together? After this, there's a story coming. All right, ready? Unison, go. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? When you commit yourself to a vibrant, intimate relationship with God, You become like that blue bucket. You find yourself, when you spend time with God, reading His Word, being in His presence and meditating and just immersing yourself in God's Word, taking the time to do that in prayer and meditation. You find yourself filled and refilled by God Himself day after day. If you lack love, He's going to pour out His love into your heart. If you lack compassion, he's going to pour out his compassion through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Anything you lack, he's going to pour and he's going to refill that bucket you have. I call that the emotional tank. Uh, Gary Chapman calls it the emotional tank. And you're going to find yourself filled and refilled by God himself, folks. And you find yourself renewed and ready to be poured out to your spouse. See, you you can't share or give what you don't have. And that's why we get angry, we we become irritable, because we don't spend time with God and get ourselves filled in the morning with his goodness, with his love, with his compassion. No wonder we get irritable when we come home from work, especially going through that traffic. Calling all those idiots from I me. Mean, you know, <laughs> it's terrible. Let me end my message with this true story. It's about a Christian couple named Bob and Sarah. They had been married for 50 years. Bob and Sarah were so much in love. They laughed together, they teased, and they played together. From the earliest days of their marital relationship, they had played a crazy little game that no one understood. They would write down a funny little word on a piece of paper and hide it in different places around the house. The word was, what? You can't even pronounce that because they didn't even know how to pronounce it. Shimli. The word was Shimli. Oh, there were times Sarah would look in the sugar bowl... And there it was, Shimly. Bob would get out of the shower and see it written across the st- steamed up mirror. What? Shimly. Once, Bob unrolled a whole roll of toilet paper and wrote on the last sheet. <laughs> what? Shimli. They played their game their entire married life. Their children knew about the game, but no one knew what Shimli meant. And they were not even sure how to pronounce it. Not long after their 52nd wedding anniversary, doctors diagnosed Sarah with cancer. She battled the disease for nearly 10 years. And everyone marveled as they watched this couple stand together through it all. And all the while, they continue to play that crazy little game, shimmy. Then one day, to Bob's shock, Sarah died. The funeral provided a glorious time for celebrating her wonderful life, but it was filled with sadness. The children and the grandchildren, and by now, great-grandchildren, watched Bob as he said goodbye to his beloved wife, his friend, and his teammate for more than 60 years. There was a long pause and silence as they drove to the cemetery. When they arrived at the grave site, they noticed the big pink ribbon on the casket. And there it was, in big letters on the ribbon, shimley. They watched Bob as he walked up to the casket, and in a soft, deep voice, he began to sing to her. The family held hands and began to cry. Almost everyone had quietly moved away so that Bob could have a moment alone. But one of his granddaughters, a young teenager, stayed behind. She reached out and took hold of his hand. Grandpa, she said, would you please tell me what does shimli mean? Bob looked into her eyes and with tender smile he replied S stands for C H stands for How. M stands for much I stands for I L stands for love Y stands for you Shimli means, see how much I love you. We are admonished to love our spouse, to love our children, to love our church family as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Amen. My prayer for each one of you is this, oh may God help us to commit these six promises to memory. You know, we, we learn so much when we go to a seminar. But I suggest that you put these five promises into practice and God will do wonders in your life. And that is my prayer for all God's people and God's people say, Amen. eternal father we ask that you will empower each of us through your Holy Spirit to uh, follow those five, six promises that we have learned today, Lord. We know we can't keep those promises by our sheer will, determination, but it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit we can keep them. So help us, Lord, to practice those things, whether it's forgiveness our, our restraining anger our other promises Father that we have learned today that you will help each of us to do that so that we can be more and more like Jesus every day as you continue to conform us into the image of your son we thank you so much for hearing and answering our prayers today we love you for what your angels do and what the Holy Spirit does every day Lord we can't wait for you to come Lord, come soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So we can go home with you to spend eternity. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.